All right, ladies and gentlemen, and those of, you, uh, those of you that will join us online, forgive me last week, those of you that tried to join us online and were not able to hear anything, uh, there were some technical difficulties there and we were low on staff. Uh, like many of you are aware, we have a lot of people that are sick right now and so uh, we're dealing with that ourselves, but I think people are getting better and coming back. Uh, and uh, so we wanna continue to pray for members of our congregation that are working through uh, coming back from being sick and uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll see the increase in the coming weeks i'm counting on the fact that we're gonna have a good spring amen so we're having a rough start to the to the 2022 but i think we're gonna have a good spring well if you guys have a copy of scripture you can turn to first corinthians chapter 11 or Elijah will have the, uh, the verses that I'm gonna read come up on the screen for you. And those of you that are joining online, you will uh, see those actually on the screen here for you guys and online on the screen over here. First um, Corinthians 11, all right? So I'm gonna read verses one through 16. That's where we're gonna uh, be today. The Apostle Paul writes, "'Be imitators of me as I am of Christ.'" Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman from, excuse me, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. This is talking about Genesis chapter uh, two. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was created for man. Again, Genesis 2. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, I read this from the English Standard Version, which I had not remembered. I have been uh, actually using the New American Standard Bible, which now has an update that I really like. Uh, I gave Craig a copy of it and uh, I have ordered a copy. Obviously, I read a lot of this uh, from my computer and so the, you know, the new copy is right there right away. You don't have to order a copy. But I say that because it seems that the English Standard Version is making an interpretive choice that is not obvious to all commentators and interpreters. So again and again, you heard it's stated, um, 
uh, a wife, right? A husband and wife. Uh, but I want you to understand that the head of every man, and it uses the word oner there, which would be a word that would be used more to imply the male of the species, right? And the word for wife is gune, and it just means woman. Now, that word can be used in context to mean, you know, that's, you've heard people do this. It's kind of crass in our, uh, in our language to say, hey, that's my woman, right? Um, and they're referring to this person as their wife or as belonging to them. But I want you to know that what this says throughout is not husband and wife. What it says throughout this entire text is man and woman man and woman. So it is an interpretive choice on the part of the English Standard Version to isolate this to husband and wife, especially as concerns uh, head coverings. Uh, I will tell you that that is not the direction that I'm gonna take in the interpretation here, uh, following a longstanding tradition. And uh, so we'll get into that. So let's go back to the verses from last week leading up to verse 1. If you remember, uh, I've told you guys many times that uh, the Bible did not originally have chapter and verse divisions. Chapter divisions came first, and then verse divisions came later, and this happened once the Bible was being printed, right? The verse divisions, at least, happened once the Bible was being printed. Um, but if you look at these original texts, it's just a block of Greek text. There's no, in fact, it's really difficult because there's no punctuation. There's no division in the words. It's just letters. It's just blocks of letters. So you have to know what's going on as you read through this because the words are not divided with spaces. There's not commas. We have all of these things in our text. So if I look at a, a contemporary text, a uh, Greek text of scripture, then the folks that have compiled that have put grammar into it. They've put punctuation into it. They've, they're making interpretive choices as well. Um, and there are uh, devices that allow you to understand why they've made the choices that they've made. And if you understand, uh, if you're scholarly enough, then you can make your own decisions and your own choices. Um, but, so let's back up to verse 31 of chapter 10, and we're going to read that in connection with verse 1, because 11.1 should really probably be in chapter 10 or at the end of chapter 10, kind of as a conclusion to that. So listen to this in context. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I've told you guys it'd be a good one to memorize for you. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So you see how that flows. He's saying, do what I do. I try not to offend anyone. In our culture, friends, if you get one application out of the last month's worth of teaching, uh, on this eating meat sacrifice to idols. It is try your very best not to be a source of stumbling or a cause of offense to people. We're in a time where people seem to be gleeful about offending others. Uh, there are, you know, there are people that I pay attention to 
simply because I think that they're intelligent, though they're not always wise, but they're very, very offensive in the statements they make. There are commentators on both sides, um, and you may enjoy some of these commentators, and they are, they're very offensive. They're hostile even. They're hateful. Uh, you know, the politicians that, that, you know, we are beholden to these days, they're, they're very hateful and uh, very mean to one another. Di they dishonor one another. This is not something that you would want to, you know, as an example for your children, it, certainly. So that's not the way we're to be. If we're Christians, we're going to hold to the truth and we're going to speak the truth, but we're always going to speak the truth in love. And so the Apostle Paul didn't want to upset social customs. He didn't want to offend people. He wanted to introduce them to the gospel and give them the opportunity to inherit eternal life. Listen, that's more important than anything down here. So if I've got to be quiet when someone is making statements that I disagree with politically or otherwise, uh, because it really doesn't impact the gospel, then Maybe that's what I need to do rather than standing up. Well, no, that's not what I think. Well, this is what I believe. And so, you know, we can jump up and down and cause offense. So this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And he is bold enough and um, confident enough in his witness to say, do what I do. Friends, we ought to have the kind of testimony and the kind of lifestyle and relationship with Christ when we could say, why don't you do what I do? And, you know, we're, we're not saying, well, don't do what I do because I make mistakes all the time. And, you know, but by the grace of God, there go I. I'm just, you know, uh, you know, one beggar offering another beggar bread and all of these, you know, statements that people make. Um, but in the end, we're to be in a process of sanctification that makes us more and more like Jesus. And I should be able to, without being arrogant, point to myself and say, well, you should do what I do. I should aim, you should aim, we should aim as Christians to be the example, to be the light, not just to tell people what they ought to think and what they ought to believe and what they ought to do. Ought, 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 ought. There's a big gap between ought and is, right? People are going to be more apt to pay attention to you when you're doing something about what you're saying. They're very unlikely to give you a whole lot of credence, credibility, um, you know, pay attention to you even if you're not doing what you say. So that's what we all got to do. We, we need to focus on living our lives the way we're supposed to live our lives. Um, so, um, yeah, let's get to the next part. And this is. Uh, quite frankly, if you were listening to that now, you know, those of you that are in the room right now have been to church for the majority of your lives and you've heard these statements before. But were you listening with the ears of our culture as to how unbelievably offensive this would sound to people, right? Um, it just the, the, the statement that begins the whole process is I want you to understand something. And this is why we're going to teach this tonight, because the Apostle Paul is making a theological statement. He's not just talking about a cultural norm or custom, which is wearing the head covering, right? In the Middle East, it's called the hijab, right? 
or, or wearing a veil. And interestingly, if you want to understand this custom, all you have to do is observe uh, Arabic peoples because they still believe this way. They still think this way. I don't know if this is the, uh, the rationale that they give for it, but it is very offensive for a woman to go out in public without a head covering. It really is. And, you know, there are some the, of the more uh, orthodox, I guess, or right-leaning uh, Muslim cultures, Islamic cultures, where the woman's entire face must be covered. You know, and, and so we, you know, have our opinions about that, obviously. But if you want to understand how strong that custom is, realize that if you ladies were to go to the Middle East, you would wear a head covering. You wouldn't walk around in public without one because it would be extremely offensive to everybody, not just men, but women. It's just what you would do. And you can say, well, that's not what I would do, but you really would. That's what you would do because it's not your culture. And that used to be the culture that the Apostle Paul is, uh, is coming from here. So, um, in my notes here, uh, at first glance, this passage might seem to be teaching only relevant to the first century, or as I said here, perhaps relevant to the Middle East. Um, but certainly we should look beyond the West and see application to Christian churches in the Middle East concerning, you know, wearing head coverings and so forth. Um, since that, that practice remains as a, a part of their culture. But since the Apostle Paul used a theological argument to bolster the practice of wearing head coverings, then we should pay attention and must properly apply this teaching to our own culture and time, even if women are not required or expected to wear either long hair, head coverings, or veils, right? So I'll say at the outset, and we'll get there, but I do not think that we need to uh, go back to the custom of women wearing head coverings or veils, but I think that we need to observe the lesson that the Apostle Paul teaches theologically here. Now, he starts off by saying, I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them, okay? Um, traditions is the word uh, paradosis, and uh, this word translated has the primary meaning of handing someone over to the authorities to surrender or arrest, right? But secondarily, and the meaning here, it refers to the content of teaching that has been passed down, handed down. So the prisoner is handed over to the authorities, the teaching is handed over from one person to another. That's the tradition. And so this can be commandments, this can be history, uh, this can be customs. Jesus excoriated the religious leaders for holding to their own tradition above the law of God. So tradition can be a good thing or a bad thing depending upon uh, what is passed down. Tradition just means something that's passed down, right? from family to family to family to family. So you can pass something good or something bad down. You can pa pass something right or something wrong down. Every time period in culture has a set of social values and norms which result uh, 
and customs practiced by people in that society. Sociologists identify customs as either a moray or a folkway. Have you heard this term before? Mores and folkways. Perhaps you've heard the term mores, right? Mores are the most unbending and binding of customs or social traditions, while folkways are expected customs without a moral implication. We're currently in the midst of a major change in social mores in many parts of the world as relates to sexuality, marriage, and gender. Let's go back to folkways. Um, folkways are often referred to as customs. They are standards of behavior that are socially approved, but not morally significant. They are norms for everyday behavior that people follow for the sake of tradition or convenience. Breaking a folkway does not usually have serious consequences, but it is considered to be rude, we would say. So a folkway would be, uh, there is the right way to act and there is rudeness, right? So let's say, um, if you're at the dinner table and you belch, is that rude? Well, it can be. It, it's, it's rude. Okay. Okay, how about this? You're at the dinner table and you fart. Is that rude? Are you? But is it immoral? That's what we're talking about to a degree. Folkways may be reflected in everyday habits and conventions people obey without giving much thought to the matter. For example, eating three meals a day, drinking alcohol but not to the state of drunkenness, using a group's right of way, excuse me, using the group's right way to cure disease. This is coming from a medical site. Um, people who violate folkways may be labeled eccentrics and as a rule, they're tolerated by the group. So we'll deal with these people we might necess not necessarily want to like invite them back to the dinner table again if we think that this is going to be a regular habit that they have. Or somebody that, uh, let's say, somebody that smacks when they eat. Okay. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, you've got a problem with your windpipe or your sinuses or something. But someone that's just like, and they're just letting food drop out of their mouth and whatever. You're just like, okay. That's good. Um, we really don't want this person eating with us anymore. Or let's say you're in a restaurant, right? And, and see, this is where there's so much going on in our culture right now to move us away from any agreed upon set of folkways that people just kind of do whatever. But <clears throat> you're sitting in a restaurant. Let's say it's a nice restaurant. Okay, we're not talking Mickey D's here. We're talking a nice restaurant and somebody gets a phone call and they start talking on the phone this loud. And this is a nice restaurant. Everybody's, you know, talking in whispers and, you know, they've got their nice plates of food and their wine or whatever. And this person is talking on the phone like this. Yes, I told you, I told you, go ahead and buy that stock. That's what I wanted you to do. And you need to do that now before we lose any more. Would that be rude? Yes. Of course it would be rude, right? Because you're not being considerate of other people. You follow, but still a folkway. Is it immoral? Well, if someone was very kind to that person and said, sir, sir, you're being a little loud, or you know, maybe the waiter comes up and, and you know, he starts cussing at them or pushing them, now it becomes immoral. Does this make sense? Okay. All right, so from another site uh, that was talking about folkways. So when an American male manager walks into a business meeting with his European counterparts wearing a casual polo shirt and wrinkled slacks, 
in European business meetings, they would wear a suit. While this casual attire is, of course, not forbidden, it may result in a negative perception of said businessman as a cross-cultural business leader, right? So, folkways, right versus rude. Mores, right versus wrong. Mores are strict norms that control moral and ethical behavior. Mores are norms based on definitions of right and wrong. Unlike folkways, mores are morally significant. People feel strongly about them and violating them typically results in disapproval. This is where there is a cataclysmic shift in sexual norms and mores in our culture, right? Homosexuality, homosexual marriage, transgenderism, all of these things would have been not just frowned upon like a folk way, like, oh, well, you know, he's gay, he's just eccentric. No, this, you were immoral. Now, if you were to say that, you are considered immoral, okay? I mean, that's just the, that's just the way it is now. Some mores may be determined by religious doctrine. One example is cohabitation, which means uh, boyfriend and girlfriend living with one another. Um, Christianity once explicitly prohibited this, and now you see more acceptance even among Christian folks. I'm not sure that it's gotten to the place where the teaching is openly saying that's what you should do, but there it's really become almost online with a folk way in churches that, well, you know, they're serious, so we expect that they're gonna be having sex. Nonsense. Nonsense. It's immoral. It's absolutely wrong. And I don't care what social customs change, they don't change what the Bible says. But see, this is why our mores have changed because we've moved away from the Bible, right? So um, our, in our culture, the reason that sexual mores were the way they were was because they came from the Bible. So based upon this sociological breakdown, would head coverings for women in Paul's social context be folkways or mores? Well, we would want to say that they would be folkways so that we can more easily turn away from them, but Paul is using a moral argument, so it was deeply ingrained in their culture, and so it was pretty much a more. The woman is gonna wear this head covering, right? So this is why the Apostle Paul is being so strong about this. Everywhere he went, the Apostle Paul sought not to upset the social order. This was the substance behind his teaching in chapter seven of this Corinthian letter, where he stated, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. This was also Jesus' position in supporting the Jewish law. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I, did, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So the kingdom of God, we need to understand, is not fundamentally an earthly kingdom, nor will it be realized in the world in its current, realized in the world in its current form. It is a spiritual kingdom within each believer and among the worldwide communion of saints. Only when Jesus returns to bring about a new or a renewed heaven and earth will the kingdom of God be fully realized on earth. Those unbelievers who fear that Christians seek to set up a so-called theocracy worry needlessly. 
those Christians who believe that they will, by their political actions, bring about the fully realized kingdom of God on earth have not rightly read the New Testament, allowing it to speak plainly. When Jesus was interviewed by Pilate and given the chance to make his case, he could have stated that he was indeed an earthly king come to start a revolution. Or he could have exonerated himself by denying that he had any ambition or authority. Instead, Jesus made what might seem on the surface to be a rather uh, evasive, perhaps esoteric uh, statement. This is the original text from, that I'm about to read from John 18, 37 and 38. This is when Jesus is standing before uh, Pontius Pilate and Pilate is asking him to explain himself. This is what these people have accused you of. Are you a king or not? Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? In other uh, gospels that relate this um, this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus explicitly says, if I wanted to, if I were an earthly king, if that's what I was come, I come to do, then my followers would be fighting to, to set me free. But that's not what they were doing. So Pilate initially tried to release Jesus. Now, he ended up sending him to be beaten. And so, you know, he was not above injustice because he didn't think Jesus had done anything wrong. But, you know, because of political pressure from the Pharisees, he's like, well, here, I'll just go ahead and beaten and then bring him back and see if that will be enough. But it wasn't. So he ended up washing his hands in front of them and saying, this is on you. Okay. So the question we need to ask then, was Jesus claiming to be a king or simply a witness who testifies to the truth? Certainly, Pilate, who feared the Roman emperor, would have immediately ordered Jesus' death if he thought that this Jewish rabbi intended to set up an earthly kingdom to rival his lord, Caesar. But instead, Pilate indicated that he found no guilt in Jesus and tried to release him. He only acquiesced to the wishes of the Jewish leaders and the mob after they threatened to report him as, quote, unquote, no friend of Caesar. After having Jesus beaten and after the Roman soldiers had mocked him by placing a crown of thorns on his head, Pilate cried out, behold your king. Then he delivered Jesus to be crucified. Jesus did not come the first time to set up an earthly kingdom. So we need to understand that when we interact with our culture, with our society, and when we uh, push our politics, okay? We want a peaceful world. But that doesn't mean that we're gonna push everybody to adhere to Christian standards. I'm gonna push you to adhere to Christian standards if you say Jesus is Lord. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying he's the one that's in charge, so I am going to obey his commandments. So to that person who says I'm a Christian and I mean Jesus is Lord, then I would say, then you don't cohabitate. You don't have sex outside of marriage. You don't pursue homosexual activity because that is not biblical. But people that are outside the church, can I push that on them? Not really. I can express to them that God has laid these standards out there for us as boundaries to keep us healthy and to keep us safe. And that there are good reasons, regardless of whether you're a Christian, 
to maintain sexual morality as the Bible lays it out. But I don't have or try to express authority in someone's life who isn't following Jesus. If they're not following Jesus, of course they're going to do what the world tells them to do. So circle back around to what I said when we started. It's incumbent upon me to reflect the character of Jesus to these folks. Why is our church called LifeWell? Because I want you to live life well. I want you to live a life that people admire, that they're attracted to, that they, they want to understand better. The life that you're living should be a reflection of the eternal life that you are inheriting, all right? Jesus did not come to set up an earthly political kingdom. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to change hearts and minds. He came to transform the human soul from its fallen state self-seeking, self-protecting, selfishly ambitious, striving after transient goods and glory. By his death and resurrection, Jesus became the pioneer and perfecter of the way. The way to what? Eternal life. He made it possible for the Holy Spirit to enter human beings, to bring about a new birth, and to give eternal life. This is far more important than temporal political power. It is more powerful than, the, than ruling people from the outside. The Holy Spirit reigns within the hearts of those who surrender to Christ. Now, I'm making this point very strongly because I want you to understand why the Apostle Paul elected not to interfere with social customs. As we're going to see, um, the Apostle Paul preached equality between men and women, that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, there is neither uh, male nor female, we are all one in Christ, but we're living in this world with its expectations and its customs. So we don't push all of those ethics, norms, mores of the church. We seek to, uh, to not fit in in a bad sense, not conform to the world. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But we do seek to fit in to the customs of our culture. So, ladies, if you were living in the Middle East, you wouldn't brazenly walk around with no head covering. You would wear a head covering, okay? Um, really, we would dress and act differently because the the, the sexual ethics are, honestly, they're coming from Sharia law and the Quran, but they're far more biblical than the sexual ethics that are being pursued in the West and especially in the United States, right? So here's the theological point that Paul makes. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. So that is from the New American Standard Bible. This is not the whole husband-wife thing. Okay, so here's the theological basis for Paul upholding the practice of women wearing veils or head coverings. So let us depart from consideration of the social practice, which seems to be culturally bound. That is the actual wearing of the head covering. And let's consider the more significant teaching about social order, not just human social order, but relational order, even in the Godhead. L listen to this again. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Not, not just every husband, every man. 
and the man is the head of a woman. Now, this is why they put wife, because they're assuming that this is referring to the marriage relationship. But I want you to know that the word is simply gune, woman. And God is the head of Christ. So there we have this, uh, this example from the Godhead. Now, I'm not going to get into it deeply. I'm going to touch on it. But there is a huge controversy among conservative Christians right now about this issue. And especially as we consider this relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. Is Jesus the Son eternally submissive to God the Father? Now, we talk about the Trinity. Uh, that's a word that's not in the Bible, but it is a theological point that is expressed. The word uh, was coined by Tertullian in the third century. Um, but in order for the Trinity to be what we believe it is, then the Father, the Son, and the Spirit must be co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. That means Jesus didn't come into being at a point in time. That means Jesus is not inferior to the Father. But that doesn't mean there's not an order even in the Trinity. Okay? Because Jesus himself, again and again, and the, the, theologically, again and again, Jesus is willing to submit to the Father. Now, ladies, I want you to understand this when we're talking about submission and men and women. This is not about inferiority, right? This is not about being taken advantage of by men. It's about proper order in creation, okay? So understand, the relationship we're talking about is like the relationship between Christ the Son and God the Father, okay? Um, there's a debate among contemporary scholars as to, to the significance of this word uh, head, kephale. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head, the kephale of every man, and the man is the kephale of a woman, and God is the kephale of Christ. Um, those who would promote a more egalitarian view of social order between men and women want to say that the word means origin, but that's problematic, right? Um, it could be, but it's, it's problematic, especially if we understand that Jesus is eternally one with the Father. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He didn't come into being at a point in time. He wasn't created. So if we're trying to say that, that this word means origin, then we're saying that the Father is the origin of the Son. And that's kind of difficult if we're to understand the Trinity. It is not as difficult as understanding that the Son willingly submits to the Father, right, in the Godhead or that the woman willingly submits to the man or, or to the husband in the marriage relationship. So, um, for God to be truly one, all three persons in the Godhead must be, as I said, coexistent, co-equal, and co-eternal. So Christ is not a created being as the Arian heresy had it. Now, there is a way of looking at Christ's personhood as the Son, wherein we say he is eternally begotten. This originated with the Nicene Creed. And it's a difficult thing to understand, but uh, so is the whole concept of the Trinity. I would contend that kafale or head refers to order. And I'm not alone. 
I'm not coming up with this on my own. In fact, that is the traditional view. In his book, Biblical Foundations for Manhood and Womanhood, Wayne Grudem devotes an entire chapter to the concept of head, kephale, and looks in depth at the use of the Greek word in the New Testament and in ancient Greek literature. His conclusion is that the word head means exactly what a plain reading of the text above would dictate, the authority, the one to whom we submit or subordinate ourselves. Now, this is a choice. Christ willingly submits to the Father. Man must willingly submit himself to Christ. The woman must willingly submit to the man in the social order of the church. Now, let's go to Ephesians. And I mentioned this a, a lot in church, and I believed I mentioned it on Sunday because we have a couple of uh, couples that were present that are engaged. Um, the scripture says in Ephesians 5, verse I might have said verse 20 Sunday, but it's actually verse 21. It says that Christians are all to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Listen to that. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's that idea that I was trying to get across on Sunday of selflessness, of putting the other person per first, of honoring one another above yourselves. That's a Christian virtue. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We don't exalt ourselves over other people. We humble ourselves, right? So that is the case for all believers. Then it says, wives to your husbands. So it's emphasizing that. And I, I mentioned this on Sunday as well. Um, so this is not an isolated women are inferior to men argument. That's not the case that is being made. Now, those that have held this traditional view in the past have many of them uh, either explicitly or implicitly made that statement. Well, women are inferior to men, and that's not what the text is saying. That's not what scripture is saying, right? But it is a choice. We make that choice to submit ourselves and surrender ourselves. As we observed earlier, Christ is co-equal with the Father. Nonetheless, he fully submits to the Father. Women and men are co-equal in Christ. As Paul teaches elsewhere, I'm, I uh, quoted this in part just a second ago. This is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man, free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This may have been the very teaching that the Corinthians were responding to when they were perhaps eschewing the social convention related to head coverings. Now, maybe the women still wore head coverings when they were out and about, but maybe they took them off when they were gathered together in the church, realizing that we are all one in Christ. But the Apostle Paul said, no, don't even do that then. We need to still observe this convention because there is something going on here that is uh, coming from the, the social order as God created it. So there is essential ontological equality of men and women from the creation. At the beginning, God made human beings in his image, both male and female. Um, this is from Genesis 1 at the end of the chapter, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over all the livestock over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so forth. Um, this is not something that the man was to do alone. 
the man and the woman were to do this in relationship, in a, uh, an ordered relationship. Equality does not infer uniformity or undifferentiated design and purpose. So just because we're equal doesn't mean we're the same. There's a real tendency in our world today to push this idea that we all need to say the same thing, think the same thing, believe the same thing, um, have the same set of values. There's increasing intolerance of viewpoints that do not agree with what has become dominant uh, from a left-leaning, Christless culture. Man's origin is God, as is woman. But this is mediated by her purpose, which is relational. Woman was created to be the companion of man. As such, the wife is the guardian of the relationships in the family. And I've made the case elsewhere that our mothers are our models for human relationships. If I had a healthy relationship with my mother while growing up, I will more likely have healthy relationships with other people. So the order is clear from the beginning. God, the Father, Christ, man, woman. That's the order of creation, right? Man was created first. Woman was created from the side of man to be his companion. And this speaks to us about our purpose within uh this idea of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. That doesn't mean that every woman has to be married. It doesn't mean that every man has to be married, but it means, ladies, you are wired for relationship. You are wired to look after that and care for people and comfort people. And it is a rarity that we find a woman who does not have this deep-seated sense of uh, guardianship over relationships, concern for relationships, uh, compassion and and desire to comfort, to to shelter. That's that's just that's in you. That's not inferior. There's there's nothing inferior about that. I've said this when I've talked to people about marriage before. Um, the woman in Genesis two is created to be the man's helper. Right. Well, that sounds like it's inferior to you. The Hebrew word there is the word izer. Do you know who that Hebrew word izer is most often associated with in the Old Testament? God. God as our helper. So don't let this teaching convince you that this means women are inferior. These are different purposes. And I think that this comes out of this teaching, right? So, as a result, to symbolize this uh, structure, right, this social structure, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, the Apostle Paul says. This is why men traditionally remove their hats in church. Have you ever wondered about that? Why in, you know, if you go into uh, a more traditional church, or even if you're among older people, have you noticed that, that men remove their hats? Have you noticed that? Okay. Uh, I can remember when I first started in youth ministry here in Garland that I got into trouble because one of my teenagers uh, was wearing his hat in church. And I noticed that the man's, the young man's mother was sitting a row behind him and she already knew the older people in our church were gonna be upset over that, okay? 
And so she was whispering, and I saw him start to take his hat off. And I said, I think it's been taken care of. That man was so offended at me that I didn't march over there and tell that young man he was not to wear his hat in church that he never talked to me again. People take this stuff seriously, and they did take this seriously. But I'm telling you, this is where this comes from. Well, should we continue to observe this today? Um, I was, uh, somebody watched the, the, uh, the online broadcast, and uh, when I prayed at the beginning, I left my hat on. Now, I'll, I will tell you that's primarily vanity because if I'm wearing a hat, my hair is just, you know, you take it off and it's just a disaster. And so I left my hat on. But I don't have this conviction that I need to remove my hat every time I pray. However, as a symbol, this is what this is saying right here, that you're, you, you should not have your head covered if you're a male when you're praying. But the opposite is true of women, as we're going to see in just a moment. And this is why it was uh, traditional for women to wear hats in church, okay? Uh, you know, this goes back many, many years, but it was, and if you go to certain very, very traditional churches, like certain traditional Pentecostal churches, for example, you will see, still see women wear these really fancy hats. Have you seen that? And some of those hats have what? They have veils. This is where that comes from, okay? Um, so, you know, should we continue to observe this today? Disgrace or dishonor is a social concept referring to the opinion of those around us. Um, so if we would agree that the practice would bring, bring disrespect to the man, then he should not pursue it. So if I'm in a context where wearing my hat into the building is going to cause disrespect or dishonor or shame or offense, then I'm not going to do it. And so if I go to another church and I'm not familiar with their customs, I don't wear a hat. I'm not going to wear my ball cap. I'm just going to make sure that I got my hair combed, okay? Um, and certainly, if I were, in fact, you know what's interesting? My hair is getting so long right now that I'm I'm self-conscious about it. Although I've had a couple of compliments recently, and people told me, "Oh no, let it grow it out, grow it out." But it's just harder to comb, and I don't know what it looks like, and I'm worried about it all the time. But I can just snap a hat on, and then I don't have to worry about it, right? I almost wore a hat tonight. <laughs> I really did, and uh, here I am teaching about this. So. So we have to consider what the effect of that practice is on the group. What is it saying to the, the people around me? And so uh, I respect the teaching here, and I am not going to contradict the Apostle Paul, but obviously there are times when I wear my hat inside. I might have prayed when I wore my hat. Ladies, you're not wearing a hat right now, and you should be. You're not wearing a veil right now, and you should be. Well, why not? Because the, the social custom is not present any longer. But that doesn't mean that the theological point shouldn't uh, be plain to us. So this is what he says further uh, for the women. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So this is very shameful. Now in our day, you've got women that shave their heads, cut their heads short. I mean, I can, you know, remember when that would have been offensive, all right? But not anymore. It just seems to be people just do whatever. But see, 
the, the thing is, I think that there's still something to be said about what we put on our head or how we wear our hair or what we do with our clothing and, and how that speaks to people, right? So he says, the Apostle Paul says, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, uh, or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Well, see, the interesting thing is, in his culture, that would have been disgraceful, but not so much in ours, if at all, right? So, um, yeah, as I've said, there are churches today where women wear hats for the sake of propriety because of this teaching. And as we discussed previously, it was considered scandalous for a Jewish woman to go outside without a veil. I didn't say that previously, it's in my notes, but that is the case. Paul seeks to conserve this tradition even in Gentile lands, in part, I believe, because of the potential offense to the Jews, but mainly as a way of recognizing the social order he's outlined in verse 3, namely that men should be recognized as being in authority. This is not to say that any man is in direct authority over any woman, but that God has chosen to grant headship to men who submit to Christ as their authority. I'm going to say that again. God has chosen to grant headship to men who submit to Christ as their authority. Most importantly, that the husband is to be the head of his household and the wife must submit to him. As we, uh, I related to you earlier from Ephesians chapter five, we all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and then he emphasizes women to your husband, right? Now, here's something interesting. Leon Morris in the Tyndale New Testament commentary observes that women are given the authority to prophesy and to pray in public gatherings. That would not have been something they would have been permitted to do among the Jews. He further notes that the woman's need to have a symbol of authority on her head doesn't refer to her subservience to men, but to her willingness to uh, be uh, subservient to the Lord. This is what he says. For they need, a th for th that they need authority, and he is saying that their head covering is their sign of authority. Far from being a symbol of the woman's subjection to man, therefore her head covering is what Paul calls it authority. In prayer and prophecy, she, like the man, is under the authority of God. So this is, the, the, in their society, in their culture, this was the woman saying, I am under authority. I am not doing this on my own. I am under authority. Elsewhere, Paul prohibits women from speaking out in worship or during worship. This would appear to address a problem of disorder among uh, during the worship service. Now I say elsewhere, it's later in this very Corinthian letter. It's in chapter 14, verses 33 through 35. Women are to remain in submission, not commanding attention, not being domineering, not taking the lead. However, there were and are women who are prophets and prayer warriors, and they are to be permitted to exercise their gifts appropriately. The head covering symbolizes that the woman is under authority, not, not acting independently. A woman, or a man for that matter, who seeks attention and dominates the worship or teaching time is out of order. 
Further, Paul was opposed to a woman teaching or exercising authority over a man, and the apostle gives biblical theological reasoning for this rule. Listen to what the apostle says in 1 Timothy. This is chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. But women will be preserved through childbirth. Now, understand what he's saying here. Um, the curse of the woman uh, allowing herself to be deceived was pain in childbirth, right? He said, but the woman, the but women will be preserved through childbirth, even though it's painful, even though it was the cause of the death of some women in this time frame, if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. This is not optional. A church with women in charge is out of order. Now, I, I'm sure not everybody is gonna like this, okay? A class with a woman teacher should be comprised of children or other women, not men. A woman can be a pastor, but not the senior pastor. And that is in our protocol in this church. A woman cannot be the senior pastor of this church, period. And I think that churches that have a, a woman in that role are inordinate. And that's not because I think women are less inferior, poorer leaders, any of that. I think that God has established an order. It's not even that I think that there were not times in scripture where God elevated women to, the, to this position, right? Uh, and Deborah comes to mind as a judge uh, in the book of Judges. However, Judges was a, not a great period in the history of Israel. And what we see with Barak, the commander, Barak was uh, you know, told Deborah, I'm not gonna go to war unless you come with me. And she said, that's fine, but a woman's gonna get the glory. She was perfectly willing to take the lead but that was not to be the norm. That was, see, the thing is, you know, I, I'm talking to ladies in this room and you've been through it with husbands and seen what louts they can be, what utter losers they can be when it concerns spiritual things. And you realize that you got to step up and take the lead, right? You don't just, you know, put your head down and take a beating. You got to step up and take spiritual leadership. You got to take your kids to church. This guy's going to sit at home and, you know, watch football. That's on him. You take your kids to church and you, you do what you're supposed to do, okay? But you do everything you can because you've chosen to put yourself in that relationship to submit. And that's something, you know, uh, I, you know I, I try to help people understand when I do my part of premarital counseling. You need to understand the biblical model for this. And when we understand how that's laid out, then our families are gonna run more smoothly, more cohesively, right? So a woman can be part of the pastoral. Pastors are shepherds. They, they care. That's what women do. That's what you do. That's what you do well. You care. And that's what a shepherd does. A shepherd cares for the sheep. Okay? Um, compassion, caring, comfort. That's what women do extremely well. Right? A woman can be a deacon. There are, there are female deacons in Scripture. In our church, they're called ministers. Right? Um, this is someone who administrates this is someone who serves. This is someone who takes what has been decided and makes certain that it is properly uh, 
distributed, administered. Do you know who does our finances in this church? Two women. Do you know that I don't know a man in this church that I would put in that role? That's just true. I, I don't. Okay. And there are many times when I uh, am willing to defer to their judgment on financial issues. I ask them questions. They make observations. They make recommendations, right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I submit to those women and I say, okay, you know, here are some options for us to give this month because we try to take, uh, we set aside 10% of our income uh, as a church of your tithes and we send those out, all right? You know, for the last year, they've made the majority of those decisions, okay? So don't think that I am some, you know, hard-hearted, male chauvinist, domineering, whatever up here. I'm just trying to show you what the scripture teaches, okay? Um, should we conserve or perpetuate the practice of women wearing veils or head coverings today? Should women be required or at least uh, recommended to wear a hat, as is the case in some traditional churches? The Apostle Paul sought to communicate proper order among the people of God, especially between men and women. We must ask ourselves, if making all of our women wear veils, scarves, or hats would accomplish the same goal at the present time and place? I don't think it would. Listen, do you know what the veil does in the Middle East? It turns attention away from the woman. It's, uh, I heard this expressed from a woman in the Middle East that the veil is protection. It is a protection for the woman, right? So the protection is that, that men are not staring at you, looking at you, you're not an object to them and so forth. Um, but consider what would happen if you were to come to church this Sunday morning wearing a veil. Would that turn attention away from you or toward you? Everybody would be looking at you, right? They'd be like, what? What are you doing right now? What? Why did Christy show up with a veil on? I went to Pastor Darrell's Bible study on Wednesday and he said you got to wear a veil to church and I'm going to wear a veil to church. (laughs) That's what I'm going to (laughs) do. No, it doesn't communicate the same thing. So, but while we would not promote the wearing of veils or headscarves for women, we would encourage modesty in dress. As Paul states elsewhere concerning women's dress, in fact, these are the verses right above the verses where he said a woman is not to teach a man. This is in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for uh, women who profess godliness with good works. So the point is not don't dress nice, right? Not wear a burlap sack to church, okay? That's the same thing. Um, Dress nice, dress in a dignified way. And see, that's just, we've lost that. We don't get that at all. We want to be cool. We want to be sexy. We want to be, these are not biblical designations. If I'm dressing in a way as a man or as a woman, if I am dressing in a way to highlight the sexual 
parts of my body or to make people be sexually attracted to me, it's immodest, it is immoral, it is wrong. I can dress in such a way that I am showing dignity, self-respect, honor for the Lord. So you can wear jewelry, you can wear nice clothes, okay? But, you know, I think that all of us need to recognize that the way we comport ourselves, the way we put ourselves together, what we do with our hair, with tattoos and piercings, and all of these things, you're communicating, you're saying something to people. In fact, a lot of times, you know, we're, we're wearing clothing that actually says something, right? So you see me wearing, you know, Baylor gear all the time. Well, I went to Baylor, right? And so, you know, I'm proud of the school. They represent Christ pretty well. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm proud of them and they're, 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 they're doing well right now. And so they're gathering attention uh, using sports. And now they're a tier one research university. There's, I think there's only 38 other private schools in the entire country that are tier one research schools. This is a fantastic school that I can highly recommend, but I want to point people to that because I went there. I think it's a good school, but it's a Christian school. That's why. Um, and I want to, I want to glorify and honor the Lord. So whatever you're doing, um, you know, if you're, you're wearing clothing that has some label on it, what, what does that mean? Right? Out there in the culture, what does that mean? Like, I see labels all the time, and I don't know what it means. Uh, Cy was wearing a hat on Sunday morning, and it was uh, looked like the, the stripes from the American flag, but then over in the corner where we normally have the stars, it had kind of looked like deer horns or something like that. And it was kind of a leather deal. And so I asked him, I said, what is that? And it turns out it's the, the clothing brand of some guy. I can't remember what it's called. But what the guy does is he, he does Bible studies and puts them online. And I'm like, that's awesome. So, you know, he's wearing something that I thought looked cool. But when I asked him about what it was, it pointed to Jesus. So that's what we should be doing, right? Um, if I find that, you know, a brand that I would have worn or was wearing previously is no longer a brand that I can support because of certain things that they're saying or doing, then I need to, I need to back away from that, okay? Um, all right, I need to quickly move through this. Um, he talks about, uh, you know, head coverings and, and nature and how a man needs to have his head covered since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Um, both men and women are made in the image of God. However, a woman was made as the crown and glory of humankind. And I'm going to conclude with this. Uh, I'll, I'll touch on these verses again next week as we move forward. Um, both men and women are made in the image of God. However, a woman was made as the crown and glory of humankind. She is what man seeks after. As such, she may be a challenge to the authority of God as Eve was to Adam. This is why she is to submit, not because she is less or weaker, but because men, as Adam did, will choose her above God. This is also why Paul wants women to be veiled in church so they will not be a distraction in worship, even to the angels present in a worship service. So ladies, you are the glory of humankind. You are everything that is beautiful about human beings. You are also inherently attractive to men. It is incumbent upon you 
to avoid being valued above God. Don't seek to be worshipped by a man. Don't seek to be, you know, there's this, there's still this tendency to want to be his everything. That's wrong. That's idolatrous. Jump off that pedestal. If he's putting you on a pedestal, jump off the pedestal. Put Jesus on the pedestal and get him to his knees. Amen? That's what you need to be doing. Don't seek to be worshipped by a man. Instead, seek to lead every person to worship the Most High God. Amen? Amen. So those of you online, notice I'm preaching to the ladies here. That's because it's almost all ladies on Wednesday. It's a ladies Bible study. It's because men, they're more devout than you are. Repent. All right. God bless you.